0: When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn.
1: NetRich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny.
2: Now, here's Will.
1: Welcome to the 100th episode of Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod.
2: And I'm Arliss Bunny. And today I wanted to start out by touching backwards to something I was talking about last week. Last week I was talking about how basically... Evil Mick Mulvaney is over at CFPB and how he's working so hard to put the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau out of business, basically. But something came out this week that is absolutely appalling, and I just want to talk about it really quickly. He said, in a speech, this just blows my mind, in a speech to a room full of banking industry executives, he said, We had a hierarchy in my office in Congress. If you are a lobbyist who'd never given us money, I didn't talk to you. If you're a lobbyist who gave us money, I might talk to you. Folks, that's called pay to play. It's completely illegal, and the statute of limitations will not have run out by the time the the Democratic Congress comes into power. We can only hope that those words send Mick Mulvaney to jail. Amen. Yeah, that's just... That's just sick. But it is a perfect example of why we need to not only increase campaign finance controls, but switch to publicly financed elections. Amen. Something else I wanted to talk about just real quickly is the Amazon, the new Amazon headquarters. And they're calling it HQ2. And they're building a second North American headquarters. It will be a supplement to the Seattle headquarters, not a replacement. It will employ about 50,000 people. Average wage there would be about $100,000 a year. Amazon expects to spend $5 billion on construction of the new campus. In September 2017, they put out a request for proposal to governments and Uh, Economic development organizations in Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. About 200 cities in those areas or development areas in those areas expressed interest. And in January of this year, Amazon announced 20 finalists. The requirements for this new facility include a metro population of more than a hundred, I'm sorry, of more than a million people, quote, a stable and business friendly environment, unquote. They need to be within 30 miles of a population center, 45 miles of an international airport, one to three miles proximity to the interstate highway system and arterial roads. They want access to mass transit and access to an additional 8 million square feet of office space for future expansion. Finalists include the following 20 cities. Atlanta, Austin, Boston, Chicago, Columbus, Ohio, Dallas, Denver, Indianapolis, Los Angeles, Miami, Montgomery County, Maryland, Nashville, Newark, New York City, Northern Virginia, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Raleigh, Toronto, and Washington, D.C. So that's kind of an interesting list. And what you're immediately going to notice from those that list is that a lot of those places are really expensive places to live. And so... When we get down to really talking about this, all is not well. Amazon will absolutely be good for the economy of any city, wherever it goes. It's going to bring an enormous amount of money into that region. But there will be these substantial issues that mitigate some of that economic goodness, so to speak. And cities don't have a very good track record of solving these problems after the deal has been signed, after the ink is dry. So the time to do it is up front, and the question is, what kind of backbone do these cities and development areas have? One of the first big problems that will happen is traffic. Most cities need to be upgrading their mass transit systems anyway, but, and if Frankly, if Amazon is the excuse to do that, then great. That's good news. But those kinds of projects take an enormous amount of time and are infamously subject to delays and cause serious disruption while they're underway. So that needs to be part of the baseline thinking. Also, the cost of rental stock, housing stock, will increase in some of the the finalist cities, rental stock is already either skyrocketing or is extremely high. So if you already live in Boston, New York, or Los Angeles, things that which is high is going to get higher. Denver, where housing is already increasing at, rents are already increasing at triple the rate of inflation. Just doesn't sound like the kind of place where you want to put 50,000 more people. Some cities already have a rental housing shortage due to recent gentrification. So not necessarily just a push in population specifically, but they've been climbing at a steady rate. Nashville is a good example of this. Amazon would conservatively, conservatively raise rents there about $400 in a decade of time. So that's $4,800 per year, additional 10 years after Amazon arrives. So that, It takes a little time to slide up, but how many of the low-wage workers in Nashville's growing tourist industry will be able to keep up with that? All of this gets worse if you factor in the inevitable businesses, which are the oxpecker birds to the Amazon rhino. And they will flock into the area, and they will push all of these systems even harder. Some cities are the exception, though. Chicago and Atlanta have plenty of rental stock and should be able to accommodate Amazon without much of an increase in housing costs. Indianapolis, where rates are falling, is expected. it's expected that Amazon would staunch the flow of falling rental rates there. And also in Indy, the federal government has just finished truly actually epic, rethinking of the expansion and rebuilding of the five interstate highways that come together and slice through and encircle Indy. So in that way, their transportation system or their transportation access has increased substantially. Cities and development organizations are offering various tax incentives to attract Amazon. And this really is the big one to me because cities and states can't afford that. They really can't. Unlike the federal government, they're not issues of currency. They can't afford it. So Amazon will represent substantial upfront costs to cities. And in this is, I think, the perfect sort of summary quote for this. In 2011, Elizabeth Warren said, I hear all this, you know, well, this is class warfare. This is whatever. No, there is nobody in this country who got rich on his own. Nobody. You built a factory out there. Good for you. But I want to be clear. You moved your goods to market on roads that the rest of us paid for. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You were safe in your factory because the police forces and fire forces that the rest of us paid for. You didn't have to worry that marauding bands would come in and seize everything in your factory and hire someone to protect against this because of the work the rest of us did. Now look, you built a factory and turned it into something terrific or a great idea. God bless. Keep a big hunk of it. But part of the underlying social contract is, you take a hunk of that and you pay it forward for the next kid who comes along. I really think that's true. I really think that Amazon needs to be a good quality corporate citizen and take those things into consideration as it chooses its headquarters here in one of these 20 cities. Next up, Will is talking about the horrific situation at Windrush, or they call it Windrush in the UK. And, you know, we... Talk a lot about the UK on this show for a variety of reasons, but this Windrush situation—it is particularly appalling—and uh, I'm really glad Will's focusing in on, on in on it this week here on Hopping Mat.
1: What
3: well, can I say to the Home Secretary that the relationship between this country and the West Indies and Caribbean is inextricable? The first British ships arrived in the Caribbean in 1623, and despite slavery, despite colonisation, 25,000 Caribbeans served in the First World War and Second World War alongside British troops. When my parents and their generation arrived in this country under the Nationality Act of 1948, they arrived here as British citizens. It is inhumane and cruel for so many of that Windrush generation to have suffered so long in this condition and for the Secretary of State only to have made a statement today on this issue. Can she explain how many... Have been deported. She suggested earlier that she would ask the High Commissioners. It is her department that has deported yeah, 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 yeah. them. She should know the number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can she tell the House how many have been detained as prisoners in their own country? Can she tell the House how many have been denied health under the National Health Service? How many have denied pensions? How many have lost their jobs? This is a day of national shame and it has come about because of a hostile environment policy that was begun under her Prime Minister. Let us call it as it is. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. And that is what has happened with this far-right rhetoric in this country. Can she apologise properly? Can she explain how quickly this team will act to ensure that the thousands of British men and women denied their rights in this country under her watch in the Home Office are satisfied?
1: You just heard the words of David Lammy the member, member of parliament for Tottenham in the UK. The Windrush generation is named after one of the ships that brought them to the UK from the Caribbean. Uh, these are mostly Caribbean immigrants who came to the UK to rebuild the country after the second world war. Britain's in, Britain and its infrastructure were so badly damaged by world war II that rationing didn't end until July of 1954. The skills of these workers and just their sheer numbers were very badly needed in Britain. The human cost of two world wars meant that many of the men who'd normally be doing construction work were dead or maimed. So these immigrants helped the UK rebuild itself. But the blood and soil British nationalists that make up uh, a significant chunk of British conservatism have hated their presidents ever since culminating in a lot of the anti-immigrant movements and hatred in the 1960s, which led to the famous rivers of blood speech by Enoch Powell. Powell believed that one ethnicity would always hold what he called the whip hand over another. He argued that the mere presence of a minority of another ethnicity in that nation would create a scenario where there would be race riots and that the Thames would be foaming over with blood. Uh, His words have inspired British racists ever since and are irrational because Britain has always had more than one ethnic group throughout its entire history. It's been an island that has never had a single language or a single culture. It has always been somewhat diverse and for centuries was where all the flotsam and jetsam of Europe ended up. Uh, And, you know, none of his... You know, dark prophesying ever came to pass. That the recent London riots were largely unemployed young people from every race in Britain who were working class. Unemployment, as we'll mention in the interview, is extremely dangerous. Uh, but despite facts and despite none of his his threats coming to pass, the racist mood in the UK has persisted. This. This has been going on for years and what's happening to the Windrush generation now where they are being deported despite being British citizens who came as part of this generation and were granted citizenship in return for doing work that Britain very badly needed. Uh, Theresa May is directly responsible for all of this because May was in charge of what the Brit- Britain calls the Home Office in 2009 and 2010. It's an incredibly powerful, powerful British department that brings together the uh, powers of much of the Department of State in the United States, uh, along with the Department of the Interior and Homeland Security. Those three things sort of are what the home office is. So it's in charge of law enforcement and immigration and a lot of other internal policies. It's basically the department of all of the internal policies of the UK, with a few exceptions here and there. But as the most important British department, arguably, when May was in charge of it in 2009 and 2010, they took the decision, her team, to destroy the arrival records of the Windrush generation. That meant that there would be no official British government re- record of their legal presence or entry into the country. Essentially, they'd made the Windrush generation non-persons, as the records of their existence in Britain were destroyed. According to an ex-staffer who spoke with the Guardian, Home Office civil servants warned May that this would cause exactly the scenario we're seeing today, where British citizens are being deported to nations they've not lived in since childhood. But despite those warnings, the records were still destroyed. Most of these people came to the UK when their home nations were not yet nations. They came as subjects of the British Empire who brought no passports with them because their home nations had not yet been reborn and did not issue such things. So they're being deported to nations which didn't exist when they came to the UK. When these people are told they're being deported and request records from the government, they're told, and I'm quoting here, we have searched our records, we can find no trace of you in our files. The response conveniently leaves out the fact that the files were intentionally destroyed. And while the government has reversed its position, supposedly, David Lammy has pointed out that a number of Caribbean nations are being left out. Of this solution. The Home Secretary, according to Lammy in a tweet, set a cutoff date of 1973. Many Caribbean countries still had not been granted independence at that stage. Granada, uh, 1974. Dominica in 1978. St. Lucia in 1979. St. Vincent in 1979. Antigua and Barbuda in 1981. St. Kitts and Nevis in 1983. People from any of those who came a uh, uh, as Windrush folks, are not covered by these deals and might still face deportation. Under Prime Minister May, all of that stuff happened when she was at the home office. Uh, The person that Lammy was confronting in the quote earlier that we played was Amber Rudd, who currently runs the home office. But under Prime Minister May, the government instituted what it calls the hostile environment policy, deport first, appeal later. And if that sounds evil, that's because it is. Uh, It makes Trump's immigration policies look rational. Because it basically says that anyone accused of being in Britain illegally is going to not have access to health care or a pension that they've gotten from work that they've done. They're going to be barred from working. And it's designed to make it so hard for them to live in the country that they have no choice but to leave, even if they're British citizens which is what's happening to the Windrush generation. So many thousands of members of this Windrush generation are being denied access to their pensions, to the NHS, including people suffering from diseases requiring long-term preventative care, including people who are former nurses who are part of the Windrush generation and who worked in the NHS. They're all being threatened with deportation as well. We currently do not know how many are affected by this, and the Home Office is refusing to release numbers, which is one of the things that Lammy was so angry about in that quote earlier. And this is typical of Tory governments, who keep a tight hold on data for fear that if anyone knows what's going on, it could be used against them politically. They even hide information from themselves and don't ask questions because they fear what the answers might be and that it would get in the way of their ideology. This is the same thing that's going on in the Brexit negotiations. Uh, the government is promising to help the Windrush generation and to compensate anyone who's lost a job or health care or spent money on lawyers. But let me give a list of promises by the Tory governments of late. It's just a very short list that doesn't include all of the ones they've broken. But the Tories promised Scotland in 2014 that they wouldn't be dragged out of the EU against their will which is happening right now. David Cameron then promised he wouldn't resign if the UK voted for Brexit, and then he did. Theresa May replaced him and promised that she wouldn't hold a general election, and then she did. A, a promise made by Tories isn't worth the hot air that carries it into soundbites. Decades of British nationalism and racism, of depraved indifference, of intentional policies of social and now ethnic cleansing are what the Tory party is for. This is their ideology. They know it's evil, but they want to do it anyway. They're only backpedaling on this now because they've got caught. And I seriously doubt that they mean to keep any of the promises they've made. I expect they'll just wait for the next crisis or scandal and allow the home office to keep up with these painful deportations of British, British citizens who were made legal non-persons by May's home office. They don't care about the Windrush generation and they don't care about any of the impoverished people hurt by their policies. They think that what they're doing is right and good. And as we've seen with, uh, Rudd at the home office, they're hiding the data because they don't want anyone to know. It's disgusting. And I have no faith that they're going to make any good faith effort to keep their promises they have now made to reverse this. Arliss?
2: Up next on Hopping Mad, I'll be talking about framing again, framing of modern monetary theory. It's part of my series on that. And today we're getting going to get into a little bit more specific information here on Hopping Mad. <music> We're back on Hopping Mad. Modern monetary theory framing is hard. And Randall Ray has published a collection of blog posts up to new economic perspectives, and I rely a lot on those for this particular part of my framing discussion. But while he says this, and I think this is smart, while it would be nice If I could distill MMT down to a single catchphrase, I do not think that's possible. Money is hard stuff. It is contentious. It is layered under tons of misunderstanding and misinformation. We have to peel back those layers. We need to get to the core, or rather cores. There certainly are many. He goes on to say... We need a better meme. And we've got to start from the ground up. Focusing on the description of money will fail. Even if we focus on desired policy outcomes, we will fail. We have to start with morals. I think Bruce Springsteen has got the starting point. We take care of our own. We is all of us. Our own is all of us. We are all of us in this together. We take care of our own. Close quote. And I think... That's actually a really smart frame for modern monetary theory. It encapsulates a lot, but it certainly isn't everything, and it certainly isn't descriptive enough, but it's a step, and it fits on a bumper sticker. The frame we're in right now, everywhere in this political discourse around macroeconomic policy, there are you know people talking about all kinds of things, but most of them do not understand the underlying principles of the, brand of economics they're promoting. In other words, most people who are talking about economics or business news or whatever don't even really understand what neoliberal economic policies are and that they are promoting them. We currently, for instance, evaluate the financial health of the economy based upon the health of corporations instead of the health and happiness of the population. This is a frame It doesn't have to be that way. It's just the way we've chosen to frame how we evaluate financial health. When I first started talking about framing in 2014, I said the willingness of the public to tolerate mass unemployment and a huge drop in personal wealth is evidence of the success in embedding neoliberal economics into the public space. I was wrong. Trump was elected in no small part because people were not willing. They are furious. And they're furious with a good reason. And here's how Bill Mitchell describes the essential problem. In the neoliberal frame, the economy is a deity and we are its servants. The people are servants. The economy is, people talk about it this way. They say the economy is self-regulating. The economy is fine as long as we don't interfere. And you know you've heard that in a hundred different ways when neoliberals talk about trying to remove government interference from business. They're talking about business as this deity, and it's going to be fine as long as we don't interfere with it. It's self-regulating. Those who don't succeed are financially failures. The environment serves the economy as a resource. The quality of life is not factored in. Environmental damage is not factored in. Public health is not factored in. The economy is natural and alive, as in the economy is either sick or it's healthy. The economy is either strong or it's weak. We all sacrifice to the economy deity, and it will reward some of us, specifically about 1% 1% of us. Neoliberals also use the family checkbook meme, the family checkbook frame, and we know that's bad, but they they surround that with borrowing is bad, deficits are bad, balanced budget is good. It's a perfect frame for them because it reinforces our own daily personal lived relationship with money. It rides on the back of that and that's why it's so powerful and that's why it's so successful. Additional neoliberal frames are things like the government is spending beyond its meme, its means, I'm sorry, we are broke, we are going bankrupt, we are creating a burden for our grandchildren. The intent of these frames is to tell us that we need to sacrifice. We should feel bad about our national fiscal delinquency. This is an illness, an emergency, it's out of control. Government is just like a badly managed business. And of course, they've put in place this powerful pay-for frame. It's been adopted by both parties and nearly all economists, but as Randy Ray says, the meme is adopted by both conservatives and liberals, but it suits only the purposes of the conservatives. It's a disaster for progressives, and it's wrong. By allowing this meme to breathe, we've allowed it, We've allowed a fee-for-service mentality to develop. So it's no wonder that minimizing government seems like a good idea to people. The problem is, of course, that's not the way it really works. And what has really happened is that the government has continued to issue money into the private sector, but instead of being kind of widely shared obviously much less so if you aren't white almost all of the federal money is flowing into the, that flows into the private sector is headed directly for the 1% so again the real problem is inequality and frankly inequity These neoliberal frames, they're so, so powerful, and so they resonate so deeply, they seem like they make sense. They automatically resonate because of our own experience and fears. They don't need to be explained. People understand a checkbook automatically. They generate anger or fear on a subconscious level until it grows to a conscious expression. And that's part of what Trump fed on so effectively and so efficiently. The progressive frame is the other way around, according to to Bill Mitchell. The economy is a man-made structure and it should be built to serve us. We view the planet as a living system. We are part of the planet and its health is our health. That's how progressives see it. Toward that end, The economy should be structured to serve us. A successful economy is determined by public well-being and environmental sustainability. The progressive frame is social as opposed to selfish, nurturing, and therefore moral, in keeping with the Lakoff approach. George Lakoff that I talked about last week talks about that we have to come from a place of morals. We have to come from a place of values. So our value is that the... We should be approaching all of this in a nurturing way. That's what he talked about last. That's what I talked about in reference to him last week. Government is our agent used to serve a common purpose. That's another progressive frame. This is a collectivist approach. And it's, and when you think about it, it really all boils down to the private depends on the public. We define public purpose and then create the economy that we want. But all that involves very high level thinking and it's extremely difficult to communicate to people. So I've recently been trying to put out a new metaphor to describe the role of MMT when speaking about the economy. And I think about it this way. A car engine is a mechanism and MMT is a mechanism. The place you want your car to go is a destination. A public purpose is a destination, like universal health care or climate change mitigation or student loan forgiveness. Those are destinations. To get from your home to your destination on roads, what used to be called ways, roads used to be called ways. Public policy provides a roadmap, a way to reach public purpose objectives. So, for instance, interestingly, think of the Ways and Means Committee in the House. It's the oldest committee in the House of Representatives. So, we're talking about, I'm talking about a mechanism, a destination, and a way. MMT is not policy. Though everyone in the MMT community has policy ideas and objectives, MMT is neither conservative nor progressive and we can't allow it to be seen that way. MMT is not a destination. MMT is just a mechanism. It's the engine. As a mechanism, MMT is what propels us. It drives us to recognize the fiscal space available and making clear the full power of sovereign fiat currency. This description is a metaphor but not a frame. It does not have the visceral pull that we're going to need. It has to it still has to be explained. So I come back to the frame I talked about last week, and I think Randall Ray is really on to something when he says we take care of our own. That is a frame. It has a visceral pull. That is something that it resonates with us. And that's why I think he's right. We need to start talking about we take care of our own. So next week, I'll talk about specific framing ideas, how to talk about deficits and surplus budgets, uh, and progressive frames around those things. But next up on Hopping Mad, we have this incredible interview with policy historian Stephen Adderwell here on Hopping Mad. We're back on Hopping Mad. Job guarantee is the new hot topic and is suddenly all over mainstream media and Twitter. Several people in my Twitter stream retweeted the first tweet in what is a 17-part thread, that I, and that is how I discovered our guest today, Dr. Stephen Atwell. Dr. Atwell's thread wasn't about JG itself. It wasn't about... Job Guarantee, but it tied Job Guarantee back into this fabric, this policy history of jobs programs that I really did not understand or even really had not touched upon. And I was really fascinated by that, so I started reading. We got really lucky because Dr. Atwill was available on short notice and has been available to join us today Dr. Stephen Atwell is an adjunct professor of public policy at the City University of New York's Murphy Institute for Worker Education and Public Studies. He received his Ph.D. in policy history from the beautiful University of California at Santa Barbara. His forthcoming book from the University of Pennsylvania Press that I'm, folks, I have to tell you, I'm really looking forward to reading this book. I've really got to get a copy of it. It's called People Must Live by Work. It examines the history of job creation programs from the depths of the Great Depression through the debates over the Employment Act of 1946 and the task forces on the war on poverty to the final end of the federal intervention in the aftermath of the Humphrey Hawkins Act of 1978. And I'm going to ask him some questions about that today. So if that all sounded really dense to you, we're going to pull it apart today. Um, I know this sounds dry, but we're talking about the history of the way government views jobs and unemployment in America and very little affects us more than our jobs. So that's why I thought this was such an important conversation to have. The, uh Stephen's current research project is on the history of policy thought on the minimum wage in four areas, the area of expansion, the area of inflation, the, I'm sorry, I keep saying area, and I mean era, the era of expansion, the era of inflation, the era of inaction, and the era of the living wage movement. So this is going to be all about how we move through history to get through through things like Fight for 15, So I'm anxious to have him back when he's ready to talk about that, too, because I think that'll be also really interesting. But I know that we're absolutely going to have him back at some point in the future, because when he's not writing about U.S. social and economic policy, he writes about the intersection of history politics and pop culture on everything from Game of Thrones to the Marvel universe. And from him I learned that Tanahisi Coates will be the new writer for Captain America. So it looks like now I'm going to be reading comics too. Welcome Stephen. Hi. Great to be here. So I'm gonna be honest and say that I knew that political history was a field, but I didn't even know policy history existed. And I think I understand the difference, but perhaps you should begin by explaining that.
0: Sure. So policy history or, or public policy history is a relatively new subfield in, in history uh, dating back to the sort of late um, 80s. <clears throat> and basically what happened is you had uh, a bunch of historians who, you know, after this kind of cultural and linguistic turn, wanted to, to look at. Politics, but not from the sort of traditional uh, great man angle. And you also had a bunch of political scientists who were really interested in historical methodology and who wanted to think about the state and how the state functions in historical terms. And these two groups sort of came together and kind of created their own little groupings. So there's a, a Journal of Policy History, there's a Policy History Conference... There's uh, sort of policy history uh, groups at various uh, history departments. And I got really interested in policy history as an undergrad. I was already uh, a history major by this point. But I was sort of fascinated by, you know, what are the different roads that, you know, have not been taken by governments? Like, what are the ideas that were considered and then just not done anymore, um, which actually links into to direct job creation because yeah. I was already um, working on my senior thesis uh, on the Civil Works Administration. That sort of was the earliest research uh, for this book, and you know I wanted to know more. I want to understand uh, not just what the government did, but how it thought about what it did. What were the ideas that sort of animate and justify it? And that's what led me to. Uh, public policy in the uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, happens to have an excellent uh, policy history program with lots of professors uh, who are kind of interested in the same kind of uh, sort of ideas about political economy that I, I was, and uh, that's where I did my PhD.
2: Okay, that's that's interesting. Uh, so this isn't actually a question; it's more of a request for, I guess, the most highly compressed possible summary. Uh, But because up to this point, as I was saying, I think of JG as a discrete policy, as a thing Mm -hmm. on itself. And on Twitter, you connected it to all of these other historical jobs programs. And I thought if you could take us through that at sort of, you know, a a rapid pace, just so we can contextualize almost the rest of this conversation.
0: Sure. So, I guess the easiest way to think about it is that I see uh, job guarantees as an outcome of a process of policy development and policy learning that took place during the Great Depression, where you had a whole bunch of people, you know, economists, social workers, administrators, experts, looking at unprecedented mass unemployment and trying to figure out how do you deal with this and – what kind of world do you build afterwards? So, you know, I started looking at the, the Civil Works Administration, which was a relatively short lived New Deal program. It only lasted about six months, or, well, nine months if you include the sort of the tail end of it. Uh, but it created 4.26 million jobs in under three months at a time when the most sophisticated administrative technology available was the rotary phone and carbon copy paper. And I started looking at the ideas of the people who ran the Civil Works Administration. I found out that they didn't see what they were doing as sort of a mere emergency, temporary response to the Great Depression. But they started to develop this idea that there would need to be a permanent system of uh, direct job creation, of the government acting as an employer of the unemployed and this built towards this idea of a job guarantee that you know really starting in 1935 these so this these group of progressive intellectuals came to the conclusion that, that there was a, uh, an inherent need to guarantee anyone who was unemployed and wanted to work a job because it was unfair to insist that people should work without providing them the means to work. So um, one of the sort of first bits of research of this book that later turned into the the sort of the first chapter of my book uh, was taking a look at the records of the uh, Committee on Economic Security, which is better known as the committee that designed social security. It's how we got to social security. But what I found in the records of this committee were these astonishing beautiful plans for a right to a job and the the title of my book people must live by work actually comes from the committee on economic securities report where they talk about we absolutely you know because most people must live by work then there's a necessary you know then there's a, a responsibility for the government to provide that work if they can't find it elsewhere and I don't know if you, you saw this uh, other tweet that I did, but I tweeted a photo of a plan for a uh, job guarantee that was created by this guy, Lewis Baxter. Yeah, I saw that. Um, who was a consultant for these this group of intellectuals uh, who were at the time working for the Federal Emergency relief administration they had been working for the civil works administration they would go on to run the works progress administration and it's this amazing figure 8 of the economy of the public sector and the private sector is sort of inherently connected and it basically says there is no need for unemployment that the government could always employ anybody who wasn't employed and that ultimately the only difference Baxter argued, between that employment and the other kind of employments is the means of consumption. He said, you know, that these are, this is an industry that produces all kinds of necessary and useful things for, you know, the American people. The only difference is that we would be consuming collectively instead of individually. You know, we'd have more schools and more libraries and more parks and more bridges and, you know, not as much, you know, tchotchkes. Uh,
2: Well, or, you know, in a modern context, we'd have repaired schools, repaired, you know, repaired repaired bridges, etc.
0: Absolutely. And, um, you know, this was a vision of, you know, economic policy and economic thinking that went so far beyond anything that I'd read about uh, the New Deal jobs programs, that it made me want to follow this kind of, this
2: school of thinking. Um, so, can I history. hop in with a quick question here? I, in reading the Jonathan Chait article that you were responding to in your tweet storm, and sometimes he makes me want to throw things at walls, but he he said that the big problem with job guarantee is going to be the administration of the program and yet we were able to stand the WPA pay I'm sorry we were able to stand the WPA up really quickly and administer it well so is there a difference in capability were there mechanisms in place then which aren't available to us now or is it strictly a matter of will
0: um, I actually think it's it's the opposite that we have so much more capacity than we did in the 1930s you know they were creating uh, an agency out of whole cloth. And they had to, you know, the thing about the WPA is it wasn't just in Washington, D.C. It was in literally every county in America that there was a local WPA office that ran the projects in that county that had to, you know, come up with the plans and get the, the, you know, permission to use the land and acquire the materials and manage the workforce and so on and so forth.
2: Which is exactly how job guarantee people... Well, how the modern monetary theory community has been talking about job guarantees since forever for decades right,
0: and they figured out how to administer this as I said when they didn't have email they didn't have spreadsheets that could you know calculate numbers for them they didn't have cell phones where they could instantly contact people you know anywhere in the country at any time you know we have such uh, uh greater capacities when it comes to information technology yeah that it would be so much easier on a you know an actual administrative level to set this up I think what it comes down to and I think your your question about the will is it really has to do much more with the politics it has to do yeah. with vested interests who are frightened of this idea. I think it was really noticeable that the one thing that the uh, conservative Manhattan Institute could say uh, against the idea of a job guarantee is that it would raise wages. Yeah, which, you know... Dang, it's going to be really
2: hard to run a campaign against w- raising wages. Right. Uh, but I think that does get to the fact that, you know,
0: a lot of business interests don't like the idea of a job guarantee. Well, um,
2: and that's... okay. Fact, so. As somebody uh, a- who I own a manufacturing company, I pay mm-hmm. labor every day of my life, basically. And what I don't understand is how other businesses don't understand that if everybody is making more, that builds my domestic market. That's nothing but net for me. Absolutely, I th- I think it's kind
0: of the difference between uh, a Costco mentality and a Walmart mentality. You know, do you see your your workers as uh, a resource that should be? developed and, you know, a sort of a partnership uh, where, you know, if people are, are happy and they're they're uh, provided for, do you take care of them? Or do you see them as a cost to be avoided whenever possible and well, made Henry as cheaply as said, possible? Well, Henry said,
2: you know, my workers should be able to afford to buy my product.
0: Yeah, so, you know, but there is this kind of, you know, fear of, of sort of loss of control that, you know, if people are, are afraid of losing their jobs if they're you know, if there are, if they know that there are many people out there who, who will take their jobs, um, you know, for whatever wages are offering because they too yeah. are, are are you know are out of work and out of money. That gives employers a, a, a kind of an autocratic control. So you know, for example, one of the things that that um, I came across in my research is there is an industry sponsored watchdog group that looks out for any instances of what they call force account, which is essentially direct uh, government hiring and management for uh, public works. And, you know, it's supposed to, like, inform people about the horrors of, of force account. And this is, you know, this organization is here today, and we, we haven't really done force account for public works in any significant way in, like, 70 years. But I think that points to... A certain amount of of kind of fear of competition uh, from employers, but you know ultimately what I found in my research is that uh, the biggest obstacle, and this is sort of what I ended uh, my little tweet thread about, is really within the house of liberalism. It's you know the if you look at the important moments where the United States almost established a, a job guarantee, and we did it like twice. That the the real problems were not conservatives because you know at the time conservatives were in the minority in Congress and didn't have the the White House and didn't have a majority on the Supreme Court. It was liberals who were like you know worried about or word is the wrong term who had certain um, intellectual problems with the job guarantee, like Jonathan
2: Chait. So talk a little bit about humphrey hawkins if you would that sure that's something i kind of missed in my thinking of history sure so the humphrey hawkins
0: act was originally the brainchild of uh, senator hubert humphrey after he ran for president he went back to the senate um and congressman augustus hawkins um from los angeles uh augustus hawkins is a was a um you know, really, uh, under, under underexplored figure. He was one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, he was elected, uh, originally in California as a supporter of Upton Sinclair in the 1930s. Uh, he was sort of an old, uh, New Deal style leftist. And they both had ideas around, uh, jobs. Hawkins was much more interested in sort of the guarantee side of things, that he was really interested in the government doing this sort of stuff directly, building very much on a kind of a Scandinavian model, what the Swedes call a uh, um, uh, where Hubert Humphrey was very interested, had been interested in sort of planning for full employment um, and the kind of um, more you know technocratic side since the 1940s. And they collaborated on this bill starting in 1974. And it went through a series of drafts and gradually sort of built up steam where, you know, by the point of, you know, 1976, it's actually endorsed in the in the National Democratic Platform, which is incredibly unusual for a piece of legislation. You know, normally platforms are very general.
2: Yeah, Tip um, O'Neill's, I mean, that was the... The platform uh, directed by Tip O'Neill.
0: Yeah, and Tip O'Neill called it the centerpiece of our party's 1976 platform. And, you know, the Humphrey-Hawkins bill, as originally introduced, had this sort of, you know, national structure where there'd be these uh, local committees that would uh, sort of create requests for plans, and they would send them up to Washington, D.C., to sort of build uh, what's often called sort of a shelf of plans. So, you know, that you'd have like a backlog of stuff to work on at any given time. Uh, And then within the Department of Labor, there would be a job guarantee office. And the job guarantee office would sort of take the place of the unemployment office. That, you know, if you didn't have a job, you'd go to the job guarantee office, and they would work to place you in a job. And if they couldn't find you a job in the private sector, that you would be hired in what was called the Standby Job Corps. And that would be the sort of the WPA-style jobs program. Uh, And it was also linked to these sort of um, ambitious plans for like, okay, there would be, you know, the president would transmit to Congress a budget that said, here's how we're going to, you know, arrive at a targeted numerical goal for unemployment, um, yeah, that's,
2: but, I I read that, that, that as part of Humphrey Hawkins, the president was required to submit a plan to Congress each year to attain or maintain full employment.
0: Yeah, it was basically, they built it into the budget process. Like when the president provides a budget, not only would he say sort of, you know, here's how much we're spending and here's how much we're taxing, but – Here's how much unemployment we have, and here's what we're going to do to get that unemployment down. It also included stuff like they wanted to eliminate poverty, you know, to close the poverty gap. But And the backstop, I should say, to all of this, you know, this is what um, uh, Augustus Hawkins built into this sort of coming out of the legacy of the civil rights movement, was um, you could
2: actually sue for your right to a job. I saw that. that. Uh, to yeah, me. it was there uh, okay, to me, from an economics perspective i you know I think, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense to me because the there are economic mechanisms to provide those jobs, but from a human nature standpoint, that gets to be problematic what do you think in in in
0: what terms do you um, mean-
2: I think that there are people who would i think there are a lot of people who would take advantage of that, not uh Not necessarily out of laziness, just out of, um, I think about, for instance, there'd be a whole flock of MAGA folks who think, oh, now we can screw the libs.
0: Ah, you mean just sort of like, you know, show up and take a check and not really do the job?
2: No, I mean, if you could sue the government for not having a job, well, uh, I think they'd be filing suit left and right.
0: Yeah, but then you'd have to go and work you know the 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 job guarantee that the right to sue was really as as i said it came more out of the civil rights movement it came out of the idea that you know the if you look in the in the civil rights act and the voting rights act um in addition to the federal government having the authority to uh pursue you know lawsuits to to end discrimination uh there was also a private right to sue because the the fear was okay you know what if you have a uh, a government that is not friendly to the interests uh, or zealous in the in the defense of the rights of African Americans. How do you how do you deal with that? What if the government won't enforce the law?
2: Well, that goes and back the, to
0: the March on Washington. Exactly. So the idea was that if you have an individual right to sue, that you know. And and it's written down in the law that you have a right to a job, and the government has to provide one for you. That you know, even if the the you know the presidency was held by somebody who was uh, opposed to the interests of the unemployed, that you could go to the courts for redress. It was it was a way of sort of building an element of due process into the system. Uh, you know, and and to the extent that you know, okay, you could abuse it. I mean, you'd have to go in and apply for a job. And not be given one. And that sort of runs contrary to what the purpose of the job guarantee office was. Yeah. And then your your method of relief would be to be given a job. So unless you're willing to actually do the job that you get assigned to after you sued, it's kind of on a hiding to nothing. That you could, you're, you're, you're not, yeah, you yeah. know,
2: see what I mean? Yes, I get it. I um, we are out of time in this block, so we need to uh, scamper so that we this will fit into the broadcast block. But thank you so much for joining us today, and we have a lot to ask you about in Extra Mad. So. So those of you who are listening to the podcast version, hang on just one more minute. But Will and I send out our thanks to Netroots Radio, to our show's editor, Michelle LaSure, and especially to you, our listeners, for joining us. You can find the broadcast version of Hopping Mad on Netroots Radio at 8 a.m. on Mondays. The full podcast version of our show is free and usually includes the extended interview like it will today, which we call Extra Mad, the podcast version can be found on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and most other internet podcast apps. Our website is imhoppingmad.com, and you can listen to, download, or comment on the show there. We love, love, love to hear from you, and we make every effort to answer questions that you ask as soon as our day jobs permit. You can find us on Twitter at imhoppingmad. Will's on Twitter at willmcleod99, and I'm there, obviously, as Bunny. Hopping Mad is your place on Progressive Radio for deep dive down the rabbit hole coverage of politics, economics, and of course, carrots. Until next week, cheers. Next up is K. Grow in the morning here on Netroots Radio.
1: We're back on Hopping Mad with Dr. Stephen Adderwell. Um So I think what I want to talk about is, is you do history of policy, and I'm assuming that includes the history of sort of the politics of the time as well. Yeah and why certain policies weren't adopted. So, uh, in the break, before we came back on, we had a, we had a fascinating little discussion about how a lot of times we assume that, uh, the policies that weren't adopted were bad policies and that we happened to adopt the best policy. We know that's not true today. So it's a weird assumption to think it was true 50, 100 years ago. Um, so my, I guess my, my question twofold. Number one, what are the, the main policies we've missed out on with the job guarantee program? And uh, number two, why didn't they happen when, when they could have?
0: Sure. Um, so I would say the sort of the first uh, moment or opportunity uh, was the sort of option to institutionalize the New Deal programs, uh, you know, chiefly the WPA And there was a uh, government report uh, called Security Work and Relief, which was uh, put out by the uh, National Resources Planning Board uh, in the sort of mid forties, in the middle of World War II, um, proposing a a, a sort of a whole world of social and economic policy for the post-war world. The the job of the NRPB was to plan for the post-war to sort of say what is the world that we're going to come back to, and the uh, Security Work and Relief Report recommended this essentially, you know, permanent infrastructure for direct job creation that there would be a federal department of of um, of welfare and that would run the program, um, you know, and all the the job guarantee, you know, the sort of local offices, and the planning structure. Uh, it also recommended uh, a cradle-to-grave welfare state and the creation of universal health insurance. Um, and the reason why it wasn't enacted is that there was sort of a disjuncture between policy learning and political momentum that, you know, by the time that the NRPB put out its sort of the final plan for you know, how to how to make all of this stuff permanent. You know, FDR had lost his, you know, sweeping majorities in Congress. And, you know, Southern uh, Democrats who'd previously been willing to vote for job programs as long as they got agriculture subsidies were freaking out about the possibility that job guarantee programs could undermine Jim Crow. Um because so, it would
1: uh, it would have disrupted the sharecropper system.
0: Exactly, it completely. would have given it would have given people an alternative to uh, working in in traditional agriculture and domestic labor.
1: And, and in addition to that, wouldn't it have had effect on the mines and the company stores.
0: Oh, absolutely, and
1: other parts of the rural South? So basically, absolutely. the entire control economy of the South would have been yeah. abetted.
0: It would have created a, a sort of a democratic revolution uh, in in the labor market of the South. So that's kind of why it, it didn't happen in, um, in sort of the early to mid-40s. Then you have another opportunity with the full employment bill of 1945-1946. And this is where liberalism really comes into it because uh, the story that has been told ever since uh, – there's this famous book in political science, Congress Makes a Law, which is about the history of the, the employment bill. And that book uh, sort of blames conservatives. It said they killed the bill in, in the in the House by sort of shunting it to a hostile committee. And what I found in my research is that if you went back to the sort of the Senate and looked at the committee that drafted the first version of this bill, which was a, a committee run by liberals. I mean, it was... Um, It was Robert Wagner of New York, like the Wagner of the Wagner Act, um, that they had designed a bill that stripped out the most sort of, you know, all of the New Deal elements. And they, in fact, in their report, you know, recommending the bill, they said, this is not going to be another WPA. Um, And so by the time that you even got to the House, you had a bill that didn't really guarantee anybody anything. And you know, was entirely reliant on the hope that economic planning would produce full employment. And, you know, to me, like, when I when I tried to figure out, like, why did they do this? Why do this to your own legislation? It really came down to this enormous confidence in a kind of technocratic... Um, liberalism that they felt that you know if you got the right economists together and they had the right statistical tools that you didn't need you know old style you know old new deal direct intervention that you could just do everything by adjusting you know interest rates and government you know and government spending and that would be <laughs> they felt sort of less politically controversial um uh, so and what we yes. got yeah and yet um so what we got instead was the employment act which had no sort of enforcement mechanisms whatsoever and just stated that it was the policy of the United States to, you know, establish maximum employment, whatever the hell that meant. Um, And then you sort of flash forwards to the 1960s. And, you know, when the war on poverty task forces were getting going, there were voices within those task forces and outside those task forces as well in the civil rights movement who said, we need jobs programs. But You know, they just passed the Kennedy tax cut, and they felt that that was going to solve the economy. That, you know, there would be this amazing, perfect, full employment economy, and the only thing that was needed was these sort of anti discrimination or, you know, remedial education programs to lift the poor up into this perfect national economy, and then we'd have Shangri La. And, you know, lo and behold, it turned out that one, the economy wasn't completely solved. And two, that you know, racial discrimination is really hard to 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 deal with. Um, so by the time that they sort of changed their mind and realized that they needed to uh, provide uh, public employment jobs to the to the unemployed, which they did by 1967, again they'd lost their majorities in Congress. No one was going to vote for um, more war on poverty bills. And then you flash forward to the 1970s where, you know, you've just had uh, from 1973 to 1975 the worst recession since the Great Depression by that point. Um, the Great Depre- uh, the Great Recession that we've lived through was worse than that. Um, and that gives rise to these overwhelming majorities in Congress. Uh, it elects Jimmy Carter and it's what provides the momentum for the Humphrey Hawkins bill. And the problem arises that, um, you know, you have at the same time, this failure of confidence within that same world of liberal economists because of stagflation that, you know, the Keynesian economics as it existed in the 1970s, um, you know, assumed that the, you know, built itself around the Phillips curve, this idea that there was a stable relationship between unemployment and inflation, and all of a sudden the Phillips curve breaks down. And you have these sort of liberal economists who all of a sudden take a look at the Humphrey Hawkins bill, take a look at, uh, you know, these long-standing uh, Democratic Party values and say, we, we're not sure that any of this can work. We're afraid that any kind of action by the government to deal with poverty and to deal with unemployment will lead to the kind of runaway Weimar inflation. And so they attack, you know, this bill and there's a fracturing within liberalism. Um, And then this happens again inside the Carter administration. So the Carter administration has its own proposal for jobs called the program for better jobs and income, which is a terrible acronym. It's PBGI. Um, which was you know, an attempt to deal with uh, poverty, to deal with unemployment, to deal with uh, welfare. And the problem was that you had, you know, at the same time, all of these liberal economists within the Carter administration, chiefly uh, Charles Schultz, who was uh, Carter's uh, uh, head of the CEA, who thought that any of this stuff was going to lead to galloping inflation. And you also had Jimmy Carter himself, who couldn't make up his mind as to whether he wanted to be a balanced budget conservative or a compassionate liberal. So he liked the idea of the Program for Better Jobs and Income, but didn't want to spend any more money. Um, He endorsed the Humphrey Hawkins Act, uh, because he wanted to build good relationships with the civil rights movement and the labor movement and, and sort of organized liberals. Um, but he was ultimately he ultimately decided that inflation was more important than unemployment. And after the Humphrey Hawkins bill um, was you know introduced in his presidency, they basically tried to, defang it in negotiations with with uh, Senator uh, Humphrey and Congressman Hawkins and after they had done their most to defang it, they then once the bill was passed into law refused to enforce it just flatly said we're not going to do this and the sort of the tragedy of the Humphrey Hawkins Act is that because it had all those mechanisms where the president was supposed to you know transmit a budget and the president was supposed to make these reports it meant that there was a huge amount of sort of uh, veto power by the presidency because if you just refuse to transmit those reports, if you just say, I think this is a bad idea and we're not going to do it, Congress didn't have a mechanism for going over the head of the president. And that's what killed the Humphrey Hawkins Act in all but name.
2: And, you know, then we got, you know, Ronald Reagan. Well, and right along, right in that same period of time you get the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment yeah and it be this um nairu becomes embedded in basically every employment plan from there on out
0: yeah and especially you know you look at the um the federal reserve and you know the federal reserve you know Comes to the conclusion like, okay, we need higher unemployment, and you know, right today, we've got a, a, a Federal Reserve that says like, well, you know, we probably should have you know four point six percent unemployment instead of four, and you know, we're gonna we're gonna tighten How up many on interest more millions rates.
2: of people are we going to put out of work? Me-
1: Meanwhile, exactly. if you look at the way employment actually is, you have a lot of people working part-time jobs, you have a lot of people working very low-paying jobs. We're we're treating all jobs as if they're equal, which is a really damaging way to measure this. Yeah. Um uh, can I ask another question about the the history of this stuff? Because I sure. find it really important. Um uh, when I say the four freedoms, do you do you know what I'm talking about? Is that a familiar yeah. term? Yeah. So yeah. I love the four freedoms. When uh from your research did people stop talking in the democratic party about the four freedoms?
0: It's a good question. Um, I think it was very gradual. Um, there was, you know,
1: just for our listeners. I want to, I want to say yeah. real quick, the four freedoms are, are the bulwark of progressivism and the new deal. It's, it's part of, uh, FDR's, uh, 1941 state of the union address. And it's, there are four fundamental freedoms that everyone ought to enjoy everywhere in the world, which is freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Uh, number three would involve a jobs guarantee program, and number four would involve an opposition to totalitarian governments and, and uh, racism and Jim Crow and all that other nonsense. Um, but So the, that's the four freedoms that kind yeah. of is the idea of progressivism.
2: And this this question makes me smile, because Will and I do not talk about these things in advance, but one of the things I had underlined in a paper I'm using as sort of background information for asking questions of Stephen, I have underlined in this is a paper by Marvin Minsky. I have underlined the the following sentence: Franklin D. Roosevelt's Four Freedoms, freedom from fear, has much deteriorated in the United States in the past decades. The lack of sufficient jobs is destructive of human and social integrity. The black ghettos of America demonstrate this. And he said that, Minsky was saying that in 1986 in a paper called May Day, which um, I just, anyway, it just cracks me up that mm-hmm. how Will and I come to the same thing. Sure.
0: <laughs> so, um, you know, FDR's yeah. Four freedoms. And then his, his other um, uh, state of the union address, the, the second bill of rights, the economic bill of rights <laughs> speech, um, were an encapsulation of a certain kind of liberalism. And it, certainly lasted into the late 40s uh and then what you have happen is you have the red scare uh the second red scare and you have you know mccarthyism and all of a sudden a lot of you know new deal programs are seen as too socialist uh people often forget that you know one of mccarthy uh, mccarthy's big speeches was he called the the democratic party uh had committed 20 years of treason, which is a, a time frame that he used to single out the New Deal as essentially treasonous because it was uh, too friendly to the Soviet Union. And so what you have happening is a whole bunch of liberals trying to figure out okay you know in this new Cold war where there's this you know incredible fear of the Soviet Union, And where anything that's too left-leaning, right, that's too much like the 1930s is going to be called communist, how do you have a liberalism, right? How do you – you know, what does it look like and what does it include? And, um, you know, this – the solution comes in different ways, right? So one way is that you get the sort of uh, John F. Kennedy kind of liberal cold warrior where you take liberal priorities like full employment – And you wrap them around the language of competition with the Soviet Union. So uh, John F. Kennedy's um, slogan for the 1960 election was, we've got to get America moving again. And the reason why we have to get America moving again is because we need to uh, grow faster than the Soviet Union because they've just built Sputnik. Um, And, you know, that was kind of one formulation. Civil rights was another that you you sort of expand the, the the boundaries of what liberalism is, and you look for other venues where you can you can push reform. But you also had people like uh, Leon Kaiserling. Uh, Leon Kaiserling was the sort of chief legislative draftsman of Robert Wagner. He wrote the Wagner Act. He wrote the Employment Act. He was a lifelong believer in full employment. Um, and he's sort of a, a constant in my story that he pops up again in the 1960s because he helps to write the freedom budgets uh, that were calling for for full employment. Um, he is one of the chief draftsmen of the Humphrey Hawkins Act. And uh, Leon Kaiserling was constantly investigated for um, suspicions that he was a communist spy because he had been, um, you know, uh, uh, a left leaning activist in the 1930s and because of this um sort of constant suspicion he kind of shifted to the right in some ways you know he he was uh, a big supporter of the vietnam war for example uh because you know he he felt that he had to oppose communism and that was the only way that you could ever have any kind of uh liberal uh liberal solutions um so another way that you deal with it is that kind of technocratic uh, liberalism that you sort of say, okay, if you know, the New Deal is too socialist because it involves sort of direct intervention, well, if all we're doing is you know the Federal Reserve is shifting interest rates and the federal government is you know, increasing or decreasing spending or increasing or decreasing taxation, no one gets freaked out about that.
2: And so that will be safe. That will let us do what we want to do. Um, But as any long-term listener to this podcast knows, monetary policy cannot replace fiscal policy. They're not built to do the same thing. They can't do the same thing. It would never work.
1: And neither can replace social policy either, which is what people have tried to do over and over again.
2: And
0: then, you know, that sort of, you know, 1960s-era liberalism – runs into the 1970s, and all of a sudden, it has to deal with stagflation. And, you know, as, I, as I've already said, stagflation, just they didn't have a, an understanding of it. They didn't have a, 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 a way of thinking about it that would give them solutions that they could sell to the American people. And um, at the same time, you know, the stagflation was blamed by the the right, by this sort of rising conservative movement on... It was blamed on too much welfare spending, right? So, you know, the reason why we have inflation is that we give too much money to the poor. It was blamed on unions, that, you know, unions have too much power to demand higher wages, and that's why we have inflation. So stagflation was kind of like a perfect storm for liberalism. It, well, it, and
2: it was... It, there were, I mean... <laughs> There were economists at the time who had a very clear understanding of the difference between between cost push and demand pull
0: inflation.
2: Right. But packaging that in a bumper sticker size statement that you could teach to the American people so they would understand that stagflation is is you know, is more rare than a unicorn is I mean it's just it was an awfully it was an awfully steep hill to climb in an environment where people were so burned by what had happened during stagflation,
1: yeah right. and it's really hard for economists and educated folks to compete with a master wordsmith like Ian McLeod, who you know coined the term as a as a conservative firebrand in the u k you can't. Uh, what we've got to learn how to do is how to respond to simple explanations that are false yeah. about why the economy is what it is. And stagflation became, I guess, in the modern sense, a meme
2: right. that, yeah. no, that had
0: all this stuff built around it. And, and then and came Ronald Reagan, and
2: then we were screwed. I mean, it... so I, I
0: do want to say one thing. I do think it does in part have to do with the loss of will because there was this opportunity, you know, after the 1976 elections, where Democrats have a, a you know, a veto-proof majority in Congress, they have the White House, and, you know, the Humphrey-Hawkins bill is on the table, single-payer health insurance is on, uh, you know, healthcare is on the table, Uh, you know, universal childcare is on the table, and nothing happens. And in fact, what happens is that Jimmy Carter appoints Paul Volcker, and Paul Volcker engineers a massive recession. So I think part of the sort of the turn against liberalism was this feeling that liberals weren't helping anybody, that, you know, we, we had all of these plans, but th- there were no, you know, there were no programs coming out of them that actually shaped people's lives. And I think that, you know, our entire political history would be entirely different if those bills had gone through, that if we had a, a real Humphrey Hawkins Act – you know, with an actual right, enforceable right to a job, then, you know, the people who lost their jobs in the 1980s would feel that uh, in the 1980 recession would feel like they were being taken care of, that they were being protected. If, you know, there was single-payer health insurance, then, you know, people would not be, you know, worried about medical bankruptcy and would say, like, hey, I'm protected by the government. So in part, I think what really kind of, you know, brought all of this down... Was that we, you know, that that people felt sort of abandoned and they turned to, you know, any alternative. So in
2: 1986. Again, in this Mayday 1986 paper, Minsky says, The left of today, as it seeks new directions because it now accepts that the progressive use of market arrangements is possible, can learn a great deal from the eight-hour-day movement. And he goes on to say, Although the 1886 organizing effort failed, the eight-hour-day was ultimately successful. And to me, in my brain, I then connect that to, for instance, Occupy, And then I go straight from that to something you wrote, and you say, indeed, we may be seeing something of a virtuous cycle where progressive policy positions can help energize the Democratic Party base to vote, as we saw with the victory of Medicaid expansion in Maine, an an initiative campaign that absolutely should be pushed everywhere possible in 2018, which is oh so true. And in turn, the progressive turnout can help persuade even more conservative elements of the party that, quote, Paris is worth the mess, unquote. And those things are very much connected. In my head, those two statements are very much connected because to me that is progressives moving through this process of trying to sort out where they are and what's important. And I think they went through a period of time where that was extremely difficult and they couldn't really put their finger on it to now where policy initiatives are becoming very clear for us. And because we can transmit those back to the party, the party is picking those things up as you say. And, you know,
0: I mean, I think back to, you know, this, this book that I, that I wrote, I started working on it or I, I wanted to do it uh, because of the parallel experience of reading Arthur Schlesinger's coming of the new deal and watching the 2004 Democratic debate, uh, presidential debates, and you know the the gap between what I was reading about in the 1930s and the sort of really kind of small potatoes plans that you know you know Democratic contenders were were coming up with, you know, was astonishing to me, and I couldn't understand like how did we go from this to this? And we've had an enormous Change, you know, see change in you know just from two thousand four to now, and I'm hoping that you know, you know, a big part of this does seem to be the job guarantee, where all of a sudden, one month, you have three Democratic presidential contenders all coming out with job guarantee plans. And it's crazy. my hope it's is it's awesome, but it's yeah, it's it's amazing, breathtaking. And I'm I'm really hoping that you know we can use policy history to to help guide us to sort of uncover, you know, to, to, to uncover where, where we went wrong and why we went wrong and to hopefully make you know, sure that we don't make those mistakes next time.
2: Yeah. Um, well, that's why I thought to, it was so important to have you on because J.G. is having this moment and you have this perspective that's not been part of the discussion that I think really needs to be. Well, thank you. So, speaking of history... FDR in his 1932 speech, and again, this is from something you wrote, but I'm quoting a quote. I'm quoting you, quoting FDR. You say, what do the people of America want more than anything else? To my mind, they want two things. Work, with all the moral and spiritual values that go with it, and with work, a reasonable measure of security. Security for themselves, for their wives and children. Work and security. These are more than words. They are more than facts. They are the spiritual values, the true goal toward which all our efforts of reconstruction should lead. These are the values that this program is intended to gain. These are the values we have failed to achieve by the leadership we now have. And the reason I thought that was particularly powerful is that, for instance, last week, when I was talking about framing modern monetary theory, I I keep coming back to we have to talk from our values, we have yeah. to stop talking about plans and policy and that kind of thing as being the thing up front. We have to speak from our values. I think Roosevelt did that really well. I think Ronald Reagan did that really well. And horrifyingly, Donald Trump did that really well, that his values are sick and disgusting. Doesn't mean that he didn't do a good job of tell us, telling us exactly what his values are. And I, I think that job guarantee speaks more than almost anything else Democrats have said in the last two decades to core values of the Democratic Party. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I, I agree. You know, there's this old saw that, you know, you you campaign in, in poetry and you govern in prose. I do think there is a certain tendency uh, among progressives to try to campaign in prose. <laughs> yeah. that, we really that was like
1: actually that was actually on Hillary Clinton's team's t- sweaters. I've seen sweaters from former Hillary campaign staffers that say campaign and prose on them.
0: Yeah, and you know, look, I I love 10 point plans as much as anybody else. But it's, you know, having uh, having done both, you know, sort of political organizing and union organizing, I know that you need you need an elevator pitch. You need to be able to to boil down what you want to do to the simplest possible terms, and that really is the values part, that really is sort of saying, you know, everybody should have the right to a job, you know, that it's it's right for, you know, that nobody who wants to work should go unemployed, or, you know, if you think also to the fight for 15, right, that it's wrong right. for people who work to live in poverty, and that really does get at people, because you know the the funny thing about you know if if you look at the American electorate, it's it's not consistently liberal or consistently conservative. It is this you know amazing, frustrating mismatch of all of these things. So one thing I always get to is that you know if you ask uh, people today, you know do the, do they like the idea of single payer? Absolutely. Do they like the idea of a job guarantee? Absolutely. Do they like the idea of a fight for 15? Absolutely. Do they think that the government's actually going to give them these things? No. Right. There's there's a horrible pessimism because I think it's been a long time for a lot of people of actually getting help. And, you know, lo and behold, right, with the Medicaid expansion, that's become incredibly pessimistic you know, politically popular and resilient because it's something that tangible, something that people can say, you know, I I understand this on very simple terms. Let's give people health insurance. I've got health insurance. I've got the card in my wallet. I know that I'm protected. And I think that we can do that for job guarantee as well. I think that we can do that for the minimum wage and for child care and everything else that we want. But we really do have to boil it down to something concrete that people can hang on to as a, you know, a feeling of protection.
1: Absolutely. I, I would wonder how you'd respond to this. The way I kind of see things going now is that uh, Democrats are failing to sell a lot of these ideas that, that folks agree with. Uh, I've had conversations with my conservative extended family who they, they oppose a lot of social programs, but you can get them on board with a job guarantee. I, I think the Republicans may have really messed up uh, because you have the ideologues who really do believe that, that you know the government creates dependence and that jobs are what people need. So there is movement that we could get on the conservative side for a job guarantee program because then people are working and that's what they want, and they want people to participate in the economy and stuff like that. Um, do you think it's possible to potentially set up some kind of grand coalition uh, in in the way you see the country right now for a job guarantee program? Because as you said, it's not the conservatives that have killed it. It's always been that kind of center-left group that freaks out about economic numbers.
0: Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm always worried about uh, calls What for, we might give up? Y- yeah, but you know, also I, I think there's a difference between... Uh, appealing to people on different political lines than they've heard before and a a sort of a a straightforward political coalition. You know, I think there's a lot of people who think of themselves, you know, sort of, what's the phrase, philosophically conservative, operationally liberal. And, you know, I think you can bring those people with you without giving in on, you know, things that really matter, like, you know, the rights of, of immigrants or gay rights or, you know, or if you look uh, at the UK, uh, yeah.
1: making disabled people who can't work work uh, with yeah. their with the way they've been gutting their welfare system and it, it's approaching social cleansing over there.
0: Yeah. Um, so and, you know, I think there are ways to to structure both how we campaign and how we how we govern that can, as I said, sort of provide you know that 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 tangible connection that people feel like okay. There's there is a, a a moral setup and a social contract that is being followed that will, you know, win enough votes. I mean that I think that comes also is part of it is that like,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, no no political program is ever without controversy. You know, FDR was you know the most politically successful president we've ever had. Mm-hmm. He was also hated by people. And, you know, as he said, I welcome their hatred. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's okay that there are going to be, you know, conservatives who, you know, uh, who don't like us and conservative voters who don't like us. We just need enough people to have, you know, a, a stable working majority, and that's hard. But I think, you know, if, if I want to leave us on, on a hopeful note, it's that, you know, we don't have to win as often as they do. That when, you know, the the conservative movement wants to, you know, stop any progress and roll things, you know, roll things back, they usually fail to roll things back. That when, you know, Social Security is still here despite many, many attempts to repeal it. Medicaid expansion is still here despite attempts to repeal it. That, you know, if we can, you know, not just sort of tinker around the edges, but make these transformational changes. They will last for generations.
1: I think Carter said something about that. He said he wished that uh, he'd come in on day one and just signed all of his programs and sent them all to Congress. That he'd signed the ERA the first day in office. Um, and and I think I think you're you're absolutely right about that. And uh, so let me ask you one last question uh, about. the the, the political side of things when we win, if you look at FDR and when we lose where, if you look at a lot of other places like the war on poverty, um, it seems to me like we win when we can make the American people feel what we're talking about. Not when we've got the best ideas, but when we can make that emotional connection with the American public is, is that an accurate description of, of how the politics has worked historically?
0: Um, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I think it, it, it's also, you know, not just sort of, you know, feeling in, in a broad sense, but, you know, feeling included and feeling protected. Yeah. Sorry, I don't have a great answer. It's
2: <laughs> Randall right. Ray, uh, I, I've been talking a lot on the show, and in fact I will be for the next couple of weeks, about framing modern monetary theory into into frames that people can actually use on the street. And one of the ones that keeps coming back is the idea of we take care of our own. And that really suits job guarantee, for instance, because we take care of our own. We make sure that people have uh, the ability to work. It, It works with health insurance. We take care of our own. We make sure that people have health insurance. But in the Chait article, Jonathan Shate says, and this is that you hit different things in the article that really drove you crazy, but this was the one that really got me. He said, intellectual advocates of the job guarantee believe their proposal serves a larger purpose of restoring the Democratic Party to its prelapsarian state of working class innocence before neoliberals took control. So, A, I've read a great deal about JG over the years, and I have seen nothing of the sort, basically. JG advocates are doing the other thing. They are governing in prose, basically. They're doing this drill down, and instead of, instead of speaking the value, and mm-hmm. the value is, you know, everyone deserves a job, and, you know, everyone, you know, there should be a job available for everyone, and... I I don't know. I I don't understand. Do you see something in the the conversation about JG that backs up what Shade has said or is he just finding an excuse to use an SAT word?
0: So here's what I'd say. You know, there is a part of the job guarantee story going back to the 60s which attempts to use the job guarantee as a way to Reconcile the desires and demands of the sort of, you know, this has become a political, uh, brooded term, but you know, the white working class and communities of color. That, you know, the, the, the sort of the fear of, you know, people in the labor movement and progressives, um, was that, you know, if, if everyone's fighting over a, limited stock of jobs especially a limited stock of good jobs that it you know tears those communities apart right. and when it people are exactly and when people are anxious about you know hanging on to what they see as theirs that's when it becomes easiest to appeal to their worst natures there's a reason why uh, fdr said that necessitous men i.e poverty you know people in poverty are not free men and are dangerous because you know they may fall into the hands of a demagogue
2: that's why obama campaigned on hope when you when you come from you know it serves the gop to come from a place of fear and anger it serves the democrats to come from a place of hope and i and you know, in the case of job guarantee, it's not just hope. It's something It's completely doable. It's completely doable. And that's what excites me about understanding the history of jobs programs. And it, it's what excites me about understanding the conversation on Twitter and in all of the um, major media that's been talking about job guarantee. I think we are turning a corner in the same way that the The Democratic Party, you can't be a Democrat now and not support some form of universal health care. You can't. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a that is a sea change. Absolutely.
1: Well, we've gone on for our hour. Uh, Can can we close this with a question on a totally unrelated uh, product topic? Sure. Tell us about your uh, upcoming Game of Thrones politics and policy book.
0: Oh, sure. So, um, in my sort of, uh, free time, uh, I write, uh, a blog called Race for the Iron Throne, which examines, um, uh, the George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire series from a historical and political perspective. Um, and, you know, at the, and then I turn the essays that I, that I write, uh, on my blog into books. So, um, right now I have, uh, sort of Volume 1 and Volume 2 that have been published that basically covers uh, a Game of Thrones and a Clash of Kings. Uh, I'm sort of halfway through uh, A Storm of Swords right now. And, um, you know, my uh, eventual goal is to write an essay per chapter of the entire series, because I'm going to go as long as George R. R. Martin does.
2: (laughs) We... We need to have you back on that subject. I think that would be really, really fun for our listeners. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking so much time with us today, Stephen. I think um, you've really added something important to the conversation, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time, especially on such short notice.
0: Thank you.